the time frame, the scattering, I mentioned if it's tied to that little phrase related to Peleg. Peleg lives about 100 years after the flood, and he dies about 300 years later. So in that time slot, you would put the scattering. seems to be the best place. So let's draw some implications from that. We looked at the implication of the corrupting effects of sin. We looked at post-flood conditions. This very clearly gives us the origin of languages. This is the biblical view on where languages came about. So, giving our foundation to language, we saw that God communicates, God speaks, he spoke the creation, God is not silent. In fact, his speaking is even the means of creation, so language is not trivial. Language is extremely important in the plan of God. We saw that language comes from God, it doesn't come from man. Fourthly, God develops categories, gives names, he names. It's not linguists that come up with categories. This is all review. I've given you all of this. God builds into man, in the original creation, the full ability to communicate, to form ideas in his mind, and to be able to communicate those ideas to other people. So it's not an evolutionary process. And number six, we saw from the fall of man that is perverted. Language is perverted by sin. We have the introduction of deception. So language is not neutral. And now seven, language is judged at Babel. So language doesn't come from culture. It comes as a result of God's judgment. God's spreading peoples out, scattering them. And eventually we'll see that perhaps in the millennial kingdom, God is going to bring together a unified language. That will be way in the future. So there's your little thing on language again. I think I went over all those already, so I went over it quickly. We have the origin of nations, more than implication, probably a clear teaching. So somehow, with our view, we have to fit the origin of all of cultures and all of the nations post-flood. So I've just expanded that a timeline after the flood to go from the flood to Abraham, Abraham being born using that chronology that I've laid down there, 2135, birth of Abraham. He enters the land 2060, he was 75 years old. So he's entering the land here, and I've superimposed, these are the patriarchs that are described in the genealogy in chapter 11 and their relative size, or age rather, Notice again, Shem extends well into the life of Abraham. Noah would have died a year before Abram was born. So we have an early ice age, so peoples now can cross to different continents. The first culture that most secularists look at are the Sumerians. And there's at least early 25 dynasties. So you'd have the first 25 dynasties probably after Babel, shortly after the flood, they would develop in this time frame. Sumer, which would be that area near the Ur, the Chaldees, near the Persian Gulf. Yes. Sumerians, they would, these would be Semitic peoples. A major indicator of chronology is the Egyptian Empire. All archaeologists, all Historians use the Egyptian chronology to lay out all of ancient history. So they date 
the Sumerian date dynasties with respect to the Egyptian chronology. There's some problems with that that I'll talk about when we talk about the Exodus. But with a revised Egyptian chronology, we would have to fit, well, let's see, we would have to fit the Egyptians, I'll get to that in a moment. I've got a quote here. A man by the name of John Pilkey has done a lot of research on the origins of the nations. He's a believer, scholar, I think he's a graduate of Dallas Seminary. I know he studied there, I'm not sure if he's a graduate. But he says the following. The high longevities of Noah's immediate family combined with the Gentile Pentecost of human government, which would be after the flood, combined to make that family the most astounding aristocracy the world has known. And what he's getting at, he's going to describe later, that a lot of the myths concerning gods may be related to these patriarchs because they were so unusual in terms of their longevity and probably their ability to remember things before the flood and things after the flood. They were the founders. That Noah and his three sons would be the founders of all of culture, all of civilization after the Genesis flood. And what Pilkey is describing here is this immediate family would be highly regarded. They would be like great kings, if not even godlike, because they lived so long and because of the resources that they had acquired over those long ages. He goes on. During this period, all but one of the 25 dynasties of the Sumerian king list and the first 12 dynasties of Egypt ran their course. This would be immediately after the flood. That's his conclusion. His quote goes on. Shem outlived most of them, as I showed on the chart. This era of the cohabitation of the earth by men who were virtual gods, alongside men of more obvious mortality, parallel the future millennial kingdom when resurrection, resurrection saints will coexist with mortal humanity in building the greatest civilization history has ever seen. In the millennial kingdom, that will be the greatest civilization man has ever seen. But conditions will be radically different. And what he's saying is this era, when Shem lived before Abraham, would be an explosion of culture because of the high intelligence of these people and all of the knowledge they acquired over the long ages they lived. And he parallels that with what we might see in the future in the millennial kingdom. So Sumer, there's Sumer, you asked, located kind of this southeastern part of Iraq today the lower Mesopotamian valley near the Persian Gulf. This is the first, probably, civilization, first culture that secularists hold to. Now, there would be some parallels. There would be some settlement in Egypt as well, Mishraim, and secularists recognize the great empire of Egypt as being one of the first as well. And, in fact, they date all of the other chronologies based on the uh, Egyptian kingless and chronology. Now, if you take a revised view of Egyptian chronology, and I'll talk, expand that more, but just real quickly, the Egyptian pharaoh Sozar, and I'm going to show you some photographs later on of a pyramid he made, would parallel Terra. This is Egypt in the Bible on this slide. Abraham would live somewhere probably shortly after, or maybe during the kings Khufu and Tafre, they built the pyramids at Giza. I'll show you those photographs later. 
Joseph would have lived in the time of Sosostris II in the king list, and this would be the king of the Exodus Neferhotep I. Now, this is a very, very minority view. Very, very minority. There would be a Hyksos period after that because the empire would have been destroyed. And then, then later on, about after about 900 AD, you'd have a female pharaoh by the name of Hatshepsut. And I'm going to show you some photographs of that in a moment, of her. She might be the Queen of Sheba. She could be the Queen of Sheba. And I'll talk some more about this when we get to the Exodus. I just wanted to kind of throw that out because of the empire of the Egyptians. So if you want the empire of the Egyptians on our little timeline here, the Egyptian empires would be during, early on, shortly after Babel, paralleling the Sumerians. Now this would be in Egypt, obviously, and the Sumerians in that Mesopotamian area. And perhaps, if you want to put some dates to these dynasties, the first dynasty, 2290, somewhere in that time frame, fourth dynasty, 2100. This is where they revised chronology. So the Egyptians would be going on while Abraham is north in the land of Canaan. Human government, here's a foundation for human government. If we can develop that. The creation mandate, remember I mentioned that God commands dominion over the earth. That's the roots of human government, man having dominion over the earth. And that dominion is a delegated authority, so man is not autonomous. He doesn't form government apart from God, or he should not, although we do today. The second foundation to government, it, that dominion mandate is hindered by sin, the hindrances of the dominion. So government is always non-ideal. I started this, I'm going to give you some more on it here. It's established by God, not culture. Genesis 9. Number four, government is designed to restrain evil. That's the main function of government. So it doesn't involve social good. It has a very primary function that the Bible makes clear. Fifthly, from government national entities develop, and this is part of how God is going to deal with humanity. He's going to deal with people through nations as well, not just individually, particularly in the Old Testament, and we're going to see a recurrence of national entities even in the Millennial Kingdom. And what Babel teaches us is God is not interested in a one-world government. We have the roots of a one-world government at Babel. Sixthly, God is going to use, in history, mediators of a theocracy. In other words, God ultimately ruling, but he's going to rule through men. He's going to delegate authority to men. This is a biblical view of nations. And men should rule as representatives of God, not in the flesh. Seventh, God is sovereign always, not only over nature, but over the nations. That's clear in Scripture. And rulers, they are not sovereign. They just have small delegated sovereignty that God delegates. And they need to find their place under the sovereignty of God. And we have a preview of the nations in Israel in, in terms of what is the ideal nation like. We have a preview of it. But since we still have sinners, we still have a problem with Israel as well. But it's a preview that God's going to expand in the millennial kingdom. 
So it's not Gentile governments that give us a foreview, it's Israel. We're going to look at that when we talk about the kingdom of Israel. And then eighth, there's going to be an ultimate kingdom, not a utopia that man attempts to establish, but an ultimate kingdom with nations a part of that millennial kingdom. So nations are going to persist throughout world history. And probably the reason for this idea of no world government is if you have many nations, there's a tendency for them to balance each other out so that you don't have all power, even though there's been examples where you have totalitarian power that dominates. The nations tend to balance that out, and I think that's God's design until he can establish a one-world government where he is the head. That's the only way that it works, because man is corrupt and sinful. So there's your foundation for government. Now, Babel, another implication, number five, Babel gives us the beginning of the world system that we talk about so commonly in the New Testament, the world system. And what is this world system? The Bible, in the book of Revelation, calls it Babylonianism from Babel. The origin is Babel. The essence of it is a one-world system that there's a lot of talk in our culture today. But there's been talk of a one-world system and attempts in many periods of history. The Egyptians had a one-world system with Pharaoh as their god. Absolute power in the Pharaoh. Babylonians had a one-world system. The Greek Empire was a one-world system. The Roman Empire, one-world system. There'll be a revived Roman Empire in the future, a one-world system. That's Babylonianism. The Bible goes against that idea. So Babylonianism has persisted throughout history. And fourthly, I mentioned Revelation 17 and 18, where God is going to destroy man's one-world system in a very vivid way. One of the final slides here, just some contrast of the unbelieving worldview, the biblical worldview instead of a continuity of being. We saw that. This is a review. We have a creator-creation distinction. Instead of everything centered in evolution, number two, we have God creating out of nothing. That's ex nihilo. And in terms of uh, institutions like family, marriage, government, the unbelieving worldview, they're arbitrary, so you can change them when you want to. But the Bible says they're divine institutions that should not be changed. In the unbelieving worldview, evil is eternal and normal. It's just what is. When we talked about evil, we said that evil is bounded and it's abnormal. The millennial kingdom is closer to normal in terms of God's ideal. So evil will be dealt with eventually. Instead of uniformitarianism, in terms of how things have developed, we believe, because of the Genesis flood, in catastrophism. In other words, the geological column was formed catastrophically. Instead of Stone Age man, one of the implications that we'll draw from the scattering is we have post-flood civilization that is highly developed right off the bat. Very high technology. That's overtly stated in Genesis 11. So just a few contrasts here to catch us up. And again, the sovereign of all history is worthy of our total worship. Questions on scattering? That's kind of the biblical exposition of it and the major implications to draw from that event.
Loretta. People are working in that yeah, direction. In that direction. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Yep, absolutely. We probably need to take a break. Let's take a break, and then we'll come back and look at these verses. You guys are dying, huh? <laughs> okay, what we want to do now, we've completed our look at Genesis 11, the central passage dealing with the scattering, and the passages leading up to it. And we've expounded it briefly, and we've also drawn those several implications from that major event. What we want to look at next is the scattering in terms of defending this not only short chronology, but also defend the biblical idea relating to early man, which is totally contrary to evolutionary history or history as developed by humanism or history developed by the secularist. So what I'd like to do, this is your other outline sheet that I passed out, apologetics at the top. Let's take a look at two major things that I've got on that outline. I'm going to spend more time on the first one, but the first one is evidence of worldwide technology early on. And I've got several things that are available to us to look at today that show that early man was very advanced. He was not primitive. I explained where you find Stone Age man. It's as a result of man being limited and disabled a little bit and man having to struggle to figure out things anew after the Tower of Babel. That's probably the best place to fit it. It's not this evolutionary thing. Now, here's that timeline that I gave you at the very beginning of our introduction when we talked about the secular view of history. I mentioned that they have first first, uh, Homo sapiens 100,000 years. So you have a long history of mankind. And very quickly we have Homo sapiens coming to Europe. That's 40,000 years. These numbers are pretty typical in early chapters of world history books. They'll vary a few thousand, but essentially, this is it. Ice Age, about 40,000 years B.C. Homo sapiens come to the Americas, about 20,000, etc. Ice Age ends. First civilization, about 6,000, 7,000 years B.C. So they have a very expanded timeline to try to fit lots of events. Because they see evolution. In other words, it takes a long time to develop, to learn, and to develop different technologies. We're going to go against that idea. Now, this early period, uh, archaeologists call this the Neolithic period, about 7,000 to 5,000 B.C., somewhere in that time frame. Here's the extension of that on a broader scale here. First irrigation and first cities, 5,000. See, all of this is before... Creation, according to our condensed time frame, or conservative time frame. Sumerians are placed about 3500 B.C., and the Egyptians paralleling them shortly after, about 3000, beginning. First dynasty, about 3000, or just just before 3000 B.C. 
But if you have a flood here at about 2,500, shortly after 2,500, then these have to be moved over into this part here. Yeah, this is the secular on the top here. This is the kind of the biblical parallels. And again, I'm using a very, very conservative timeline. Some scholars will expand this a little bit, but not any more than 10,000 years. So we have Minoans, we have Great Pyramids of Khufu, and again, I would put these Great Pyramids closer to Abraham's time, about 2000. Chinese Empire before 2000 BC, Syrian Empire, Babylonian Empire, it's the beginnings with Hammurabi, Phoenician alphabet, about 1000. That's a secular view. And obviously, we would not agree with that in terms of the time, Greek alphabet. Now, some of these events we would we would accept, but we would reject the time frame. World religions, which is interesting, we'll talk about it later. And then the Roman Empire, we wouldn't conflict with secularists on that time frame. So, let's take a look at uh, these two things. First of all, let's look at evidence of worldwide technology and high intelligence. Worldwide technology and very, very high intelligence, and you can add to that very early. So we don't have a biblical picture of man uh, in a primitive state. Nowhere in the Bible. Even when we talk about the scattering, it doesn't make any comments. The Bible doesn't talk about pre, so-called prehistoric man. Because we would say there's no prehistoric man. So, man is not primitive. In fact, we would even say the closer that people are to Adam, the higher would be their intelligence because they would have less degeneration in terms of brain cells and, and genetic defects in terms of mentality and thinking. So, also, the closer you are to, to Noah, that's why we describe Noah, he would have been like genius to us. Not only in capability, but he would be genius in terms of the accumulation of hundreds of years of information and probably a more purified memory to be able to retain all of that. That's the biblical picture. That's what I've heard. Yeah. So, let's look at just various pieces of data that kind of indicate this high intelligence, high technology, and we see it early. And I've got a list of things on your outline sheet. First of all, very, very sophisticated architecture or structures, you might say. So let's look at this whole area. And the best way to do it is to look at some photographs. We have very early these pyramids, or this resembles more like a ziggurat, and this is in Egypt. This is uh, Saqqara. It's called the Step Pyramid. Uh, Zosar would be an Egyptian pharaoh about 2290 B.C. This would be, be before the time of Abraham. Before the time of Abraham. And it's not that this is more primitive. This is just probably more related to the ziggurats that you would find in the Mesopotamian area. So it's more architecturally similar, not so much technologically less advanced. That's how the secularist would say, well, this is a lesser advanced pyramid. I think it was driven more by architecture. And by the way, we see these 
stepped-type pyramids in other parts of the world as well, showing that there's probably a relationship to Babel. Probably a relationship to Babel. Now, last summer, I took these photographs. Uh, this one I acquired. can't remember where I got that one, but this is what it looks like today. They're doing some reconstruction. I took this photograph here. And the point I was making here, it's more similar to the ziggurats in Sumer. And I got a bunch of photographs of it, but I'm not going to show you all of them. The main thing I want you to see, the technology that it took to build the pyramids, including this one here, we do not know today how they did it. We have no idea. And I'll point out some of those in a moment. And that would include particularly the three great pyramids of Giza, and in the chronology that we're using, we would say they would be built in about the 4th dynasty, 2100 B.C. They would have been there when Abraham went down to Egypt from Canaan, from the land of Canaan. So these precede Abraham. Abraham is, he enters the land 2060 on my chronology. So those were already there. Yes, yeah. These are queens, mm -hmm. little pyramids. Uh, these are impressive. Uh, that's about, yeah, these are probably 30 feet, maybe 40, somewhere in there. Yeah. But pyramids are not just in Egypt. And I, I'm going to come back to pyramids, and I'm going to show you some other ones. But several years ago, I used to go to Mexico as well, and there's some very well-known and very impressive pyramids in Mexico. Teotihuacan, near I don't know, about 60 miles north of Mexico City. There's this entire civilization that existed. Now, this is A.D., but they're still building pyramids. And this is a very impressive pyramid. This is just a model of the actual pyramids that still exist. I'm going to show you some more in a moment here, just to give you an orientation. This is the Pyramid of the Sun, and what that culture did is they would sacrifice humans at the top. And this is a pyramid to the moon over here, and they had a whole plaza of temples and different structures devoted to gods and different things related to their religion. But they, uh, there's evidence that they did actual human sacrifice at the top of this. And here's the actual pyramid of the sun, and it's the third largest in the world. Uh, Teotihuacan, north of Mexico City. There's others. Uh, this one is one of the most impressive. It's third largest pyramid in the world. So it, it kind of rivals the pyramids in Egypt. Do you think they're still building like this, or how old are these? No, these are, I can't remember the dates on these, but this would go back to the Mayans and the Incas and those those groups. I can't remember if this is Mayan, I don't know. But this is very impressive. I went to the top. I'll show you a photograph from the top in a moment. And there it is from a different angle. In fact, this is from, this is the Pyramid of the Sun from the Pyramid of the Moon. The steps of the Pyramid of the Moon. And I took these photographs as well. Quite impressive. Give you a perspective, the size of people there. The point to note, uh, the reason I'm showing you these, these are impressive architecturally in terms of intellectual capability of these people to build these structures. That's the photograph I told you from the Pyramid of the Sun that I took when I was on top of it, down, looking down on the Pyramid of the Moon. 
These are also aligned astronomically. In fact, most pyramids are aligned astronomically. So they understood astronomy and they could, they built such that these are aligned so that the sun is at certain points, usually solstices where the sun would reflect and project down into certain areas. But they are very clearly aligned. So they had a high knowledge of not only mathematics, engineering, high understanding of astronomy and astrophysics even. So that's Mexico, kind of central, uh, a Mayan pyramid in Chichen Itza. Here's a date for you, 600 to 900 A.D. Those others would be somewhere in, probably maybe even before this time frame, but not much. be A.D. time frames. But again, you, you have kind of these different steps, kind of a combination of the Egyptian and the ziggurat style type thing there. And these are impressive. In fact, there's hundreds of these in in Mexico and Central America, Guatemala. Thousands of them, actually. I think they've counted like thousands of them. Another shot. And same thing. Impressive in terms of technology. In Egypt, we also have these obelisks, and they generally are also built in alignment with stars. This one built in honor of the female pharaoh Hatshepsut obelisk. This is at the Karnak Temple. I took these last summer when I was in Egypt. And can you imagine what technology did it take to cut this out of one stone? I mean, this is one stone. What technology did it take to lift this up and to set it on a foundation such that it didn't fall over? And what technology did it take to keep it from breaking? A lot of these, we don't know how they did these things because we could not do them today. Here's another, there's a broken obelisk. This one is built by Hatshepsut with the obelisk that bears her name in the background there. And then there's another one over here. I don't remember the name of it, but this is at that Karnak temple. But what I'm trying to impress upon you is these are not primitive people. These are people with high intelligence that had scientific background and some of the science we don't understand today. And you can go around the world and we don't understand how they built Stonehenge and there's several of these around the world as well. How did they lift these stones? How did they, and and they're aligned again with stars. So we have a lot of that architecture. And these are around the world. So they took technology as they were scattered. And they developed structures that reflect that technology. We know that early peoples navigated. How did they navigate the Pacific Ocean? How did they know how to get to where they needed to go? They had to understand how to navigate. And that takes instrumentality. That takes an understanding of spherical geometry. How many of you have a background in spherical geometry? Linda does. That's that's a pretty complicated area of, of mathematics. They had to have an understanding of spherical geometry and astronomy to be able to navigate, to be able to get around oceans. How do you explain these people that occupy all these Pacific Ocean islands that have been there for hundreds of years? Yeah. Well, you have to make sure you know where you're at because of the instability of things like winds, exactly. 
optical lenses. We have artifacts that indicate that early peoples had the ability to polish glass and make make sophisticated uh, lenses that they probably used for telescopes to be able to observe the stars, and evidence that they might have used lenses in terms of microscopes as well. We have some artifacts of very microscopic writing on small pieces of material on a knife handle that can only be observed using a magnifying glass. How did they produce that? They didn't have etching tools, or did they? Maybe they did. And I've already mentioned the astronomical knowledge that early peoples seem to possess. I was just reading, I think it was Psalm 19, and, you know, the heavens declare the glories of the Lord, and, and Old Testament, the Magi, they knew the sign was coming because of... They understood astronomical locations in terms of where stars were located at different times of year. And that varies depending on the year. So they understood that the whole astronomical time frame in terms of where stars are supposed to be, and they built their structures accordingly, and that's reflected in their astronomical knowledge. They had a high astronomical knowledge very early. But the astronomy stuff today isn't like that, is it? Some of it is. Some of it, yeah. Some of it, yeah, we're learning some of the same things they knew back then. And remember, when we're talking about the pyramids, we're talking about Two, three thousand years BC, where they knew they had this astronomical knowledge to be able to build these things according to different stars and equinoxes and that sort of thing. Here's an interesting instrument that was found. Uh, it's called the Antikythera mechanism, and it's very complex. And, and it's I don't know what it's dated to. Second century BC is what I've got in my notes here. It was found on a 2nd century B.C. Roman merchant ship and is believed to be some sort of a navigational device. And what I read here, it has 30 of the original bronze gears. So it was a mechanism that had gears in it that made certain calculations. This is B.C. So we have architecture, navigational instruments, optical lenses, and by the way, that one that I gave you is probably a navigational instrument. It's not known what it is, but it's possibly a navigational instrument since it was found on a ship. So they had a high knowledge of astronomy. There's ancient world maps that are extremely accurate. Again, to form a world map, you have to know spherical geometry to be able to map the globe, and there's world maps. One that's done some research into these maps, Charles Hepgood, says the evidence presently or presented by the ancient maps appear to suggest that in remote times, in other words, ancient times, before the rise of any of the known cultures of a true civilization of a comparatively advanced sort, which either was localized in one area but had worldwide commerce, worldwide commerce, early on, and they had maps, or was, in a real sense, a worldwide culture. High intelligence, high technology. One of the maps indicates that they would have had a knowledge of the circumference of the Earth. Spherical geometry. They have some details, I'm going to show you a photograph of one, details on every continent. Spherical trigonometry. And what Linda was alluding to, one of these maps gives Antarctica's shoreline 
that only recently we have, through, I think, sonar, discovered where the land mass of Antarctica is because that whole area is covered with ice. So these maps were made perhaps before the Ice Age or from maps that were, these maps were descended from prior maps that were made before the Ice Age, before there was ice in, or at least ice in Antarctica. On the map, they show remnants of glaciers, and there's probably the more famous one, Piri Reis World Map. It dates to 1513, but it clearly has origins much earlier than that. And just this map alone, if you look at it carefully, you can see the outline of South America here. See that? And this would be the Gulf of, this would be the Gulf of Mexico, and this would be North America over here. Just a little piece of it. And this is just a fragment that is left. And then you'd have the Atlantic Ocean, and then you have that round part of Africa here, and Spain is pretty clear. You can see Portugal there, the face. And the whole map would have had Europe. Could any of you ma- produce a map of the world today? Yeah. Yeah. So imagine people had the technology to develop these, and they had the technology to be able to navigate, to be able to plot these and put them on a map, to be able to find all of these locations. It's believed that this has prior maps that were that preceded the, the development of this one in 1513. Would you ask there? 1513 A.D., does that mean there's some date on there that, that identifies that? or? I don't think it has a date on it, per se, but one of the indicators is notice the style of the ships there and, and the little details that they put together to kind of come up with dates. The material itself probably gives you an indication and they may have done some carbon dating on some of that as well, if it's carbon-based material. So, if all this knowledge was there, 1913. Well, we're saying that that's what the Bible indicates as well, and this is just evidence that confirms what we believe that the Bible teaches. So why did people largely believe the one was If they had spherical geometry knowledge to mm-hmm. in these maps... Because they were secularists, they were unbelievers that believed in the theory of evolution, so they came to these other alternative conclusions other than what the Bible teaches. Evolution goes all the way back probably to the Garden of Eden, fall of man. The Greeks believed in evolution. The ancient Greeks believed in evolution. All Darwin did in terms of evolution is he just popularized an ancient theory and made it scientific. But evolution is an old, it's got ancient roots. Okay, let's keep going here. So they had astronomical knowledge, number four. Number five, there's world maps. And by the way, this is not the only one. There's others as well that are in existence that are old, that are probably based on older maps. Egyptian pigments and mummification. Today, we have no idea how they produce these pigments. We have to paint a house every, what? 10 years or so. Well, let me show you some of the pigments. And we really don't know this process of mummification. These are secrets that died with the Egyptian culture. When I was in uh, Egypt last summer, there's, in several places, there's these wall reliefs, and they're obviously related to the Egyptian 
stories, that sort of thing, and their gods. Here we have Isis, the goddess Isis, and we have Horus Ra. This is the god here. And the interesting thing about uh, Hatshepsut, the female, the female pharaoh, is in many places where she appeared in these, her stepson obliterated her out of the monuments. He hated her. He was the pharaoh that came later. We don't really know why, but in a lot of places we have what should have been a portrait or a relief of Hatshepsut. But the thing I'm pointing out here is not so much this background, but these pigments are original. They're not touched up. So these pigments are 3,000 years old. And they're very bright today. In fact, this isn't just a photograph. And you have this yellowish, you have this red, and there's other colors elsewhere. There's blues. I don't have it on this slide. That's just one example. Here's another example of Amun-Ra at the same temple, Hatshepsut. Spent a lot of time with her, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> Notice the little, the, the bluish color there, and the yellowish, and the reddish. Again, these are colors that have persisted for thousands of years. We don't have pigments that we, we could uh, that could stand up to these, and and we don't know how they did this. They had chemistry. They had an understanding of chemistry, pigments, and the, all the whole chemical process involved in painting and that sort of thing that persists to this day. Just examples here. So. You could also talk about mummification. We don't know the process. That also died. In fact, the tour guide, the, uh, the girl that was showing me around all of these sites, she pointed these things out. Now, she was a believer. She didn't know that I did all of this, so I just, when she said that, it just re it reminded me of the advancement of the Egyptian culture and the intelligence. But she pointed out that these went with the passing of the Egyptian culture, and we really don't know. And I've read the same thing elsewhere. Number seven, there's evidence that the Americas were known. Cyrus Gordon, a scholar, says, Mankind, after lapses into collective amnesia, the Egyptians forgot how to read their ancestors' hieroglyphics. And the Persians lost their knowledge, not only the script, but also the history and very names of Cyrus Cambyses. Xerxes, who made their ancestors rulers of the world. We, Americans, believe at least tacitly that white men did not come to America before Columbus's discovery of our continent in 1492, or certainly not before the Vikings around 1000 A.D., and yet the Greek author, and this is the point of the whole quote, Theopompius, Pompus, Theopompus, in the 4th century B.C., wrote of an enormous land inhabited by a race quite unlike the Greeks, probably the Indian tribes of North America. Three centuries, this is, this is the Greeks, B.C. Three centuries later, Diodorus of Sicily described a great land with navigable rivers, Mississippi maybe, West of Africa, discovered by Phoenicians, blown across the ocean by strong winds. High intelligence, high technology. Mechanical devices, I showed you one earlier. There's evidence of gears, levers, wheels, other technology. 
drilling tools in Egypt to do uh, dentistry, dental tools, and that's just an idea of some of the technology. And just, again, these, uh, these pyramids, uh, that's Khufu, 2100, Khafre, about 1800. This, this would be after Abraham, this one. Uh, this one would have been before Abraham. White limestone on the top of the second one, that's up here. Just the technology involved. And just to give you a feel for it, the Great Pyramid, Khufu, it's aligned to the constellation Orion. So again, aligned to the stars. Million limestone blocks, 2.5 to 15 tons each. How did they move them? How did they place them? How did they cut them? How did they set them? And also it covers 13 acres and it's level to uh, an accuracy of seven-eighths of, of an inch. Today we have survey instruments uh, that we can get that kind of accuracy. Did they have survey instruments? How did they level that? And how did they put all those stones there? We really don't know. A lot of mysteries. This gives you a feel. It's my Ukrainian friend that married an Egyptian that showed me around Egypt. Lena. But just to give you a, a scale of some of these lower blocks in this same pyramid. This is the same pyramid. Yeah. It gives you an idea of the size. Well, the lower ones are bigger, but... Well, I never, I don't know. They would have been in their original. They would have been smooth. But see, after year, you know, thousands of years, you have the falling of the face, the facing there. This is the pyramid here, uh, Khufu. But that gives you a feel. I wanted to climb it, but they don't permit it anymore. <laughs> Too many people die. <laughs> yeah. Just another pyramid, just to give you a feel for it. Uh, it's called the Bent Pyramid, and it's not certain why, but I took this photograph as well. But if you look at the stones on the facing, notice how you couldn't get a credit card between those stones. How did they do that? How'd they do that? And that's the outer casing, so the whole pyramid would have been encased with this smooth rock. And how did they climb it? I mean, they had some technology there. And this is not just Egypt. Here's some stones in Bolivia that seem to have been cut by saws of some sort. Puma Kunku in Bolivia. Another photograph of similar stones. What technology did they have? Easter Island, how'd they produce these? Okay, advanced medicine. This is the next category there on your outline sheet. Worldwide commonality. In other words, things in common that you find worldwide that gives evidence that when people were scattered, they took technologies with them. They took knowledge with them. Worldwide technology, high intelligence, not primitive. Worldwide commonality, common source. And let me go through this real quick. Ancient cultures all over the world show links of intelligence in areas of architecture, religion, mathematical abilities, and astronomical understandings. There are common creation stories all over the world in different cultures. There are, I mentioned, at least 150 flood traditions. Gilgamesh epic is one Babylonian flood story. But there's over 150. Some scholars have counted more. 
So all cultures, the Sumerians have a flood story, Babylonians, Persians, Syrians, these are just examples, Asia Minor, Greece, Italy, Lithuania, Russia, China, India, Cree Indians, all over the world, Aztecs, they all have a flood story. Peru, there you go. <laughs> Fiji Islands, Hawaiian Islands, all have flood stories. This chart is just kind of a chart to show what things are common in these various cultures, and you can compare that. Lots of things in common. Some differences, but a lot of things in common. Chinese character for Nu Wa. That's the Chinese character for Nu Wa. Chinese Nu Wa was regarded as their ancestor and hero. Nu Wa. The Chinese character for ship has the symbol for eight and mouth. How many mouths were on the ship? Eight mouths. So you have these common things in different cultures. Flood traditions. This is just another chart to show how common the, the details. Uh, there's a flood catastrophe in 95% of them. Just a chart there. And I showed you these. They're all over Egypt, Mesopotamia, Sudan, Mexico, South Central and South America. There's the one of the sun there. Uh, this is interesting. Linguistics all over the world. This idea of Eber, the, Hebrew, it, the word Hebrew comes from Eber, but the Iberian Peninsula is probably related to this word Eber. Hibernia in Ireland, common linguistics here, or Iberia Russia, in Russian Georgia. There's, these things are common. And by the way, the Aztec language has a lot of similarities to Hebrew. This is Central America, Mexico. Okay, I'm about done here. There's satanic counterfeits of a lot of these that we could talk about, but we'll skip that. The conclusion, no primitive cultures. Any primitive cultures are as a result of loss of culture, possibly as a result of Babel immediately after. A rapid development, number two, a rapid development of high cultures and civilizations. High technology, and I just gave you a feel for it. Things that we don't even know how they did some of these things. Fourthly, cycles of sin that have affected not only man, but technology as well. We got through it. Amen. <laughs> I told you where the caveman were. They went to their Origin and they lost after the scattering, correct? Yeah, they would have. Uh, okay. And this is during the scattering or after the scattering? It would have been after. After the scattering. Right. And next week we'll look at Abraham right off the beginning. I believe this is our, what, ninth session already? Wow. And we will be looking at our fifth major event. Dealing with primarily Abraham, but also a major focus of Abraham is a very, very important covenant. So I'm going to read covenants with you again, and we'll also talk about probably the most important of all of the covenants, if you can rank them one with another. So uh, we'll be in Genesis 12. We obviously won't go through 50, but... I'm going to touch on passages outside of chapter 12. In fact, we'll even begin in chapter 11 in dealing with 
Abraham. And just another reminder, we're building on foundations, so our class is named Foundations, because I see all of these early events building upon one another, where God has a plan, and the Bible basically unfolds this plan, and each event, each thing that God is doing builds upon itself. So we have an original creation that was very good. God created all things, visible and invisible. And when man's sin entered in, we have the record of the fall. That changed everything. Everything is different from the original creation. Now, the secular world doesn't understand that there's a difference between the creation and the fall. In fact, a lot of Christians don't understand that. But this is crucial because if you understand this relationship, you also can understand what God is doing in history in dealing with man's sin and reversing it. Now, ultimately, it will be ultimately reversed, and things will be even better than the original creation. So we have the fall, and then we have the flood, which builds on the fall because there's judgment that comes with sin. So the flood, God intervenes, allows sin to take its course, which is a destructive course. He intervenes to save and to judge. So that's the flood. And after the flood, we have civilizations built. And before too much is built, we have the scattering, and we have the origin of the nations as a result of that foundational event. And that leads to what we're looking at today. Out of the many nations, God calls one individual. And that individual will be the center of what God will do in terms of developing an entire nation, the nation of Israel, and God will from now on deal with this particular nation. In our age, the nation is somewhat set aside, but God is not finished with the nation because of what he promises and enters into covenant with Abraham. So we're still seeing the outworking of what God is dealing with with Abraham. Israel leads to the kingdom. The kingdom is God ruling through that nation on earth, an expression of the dominion mandate of the creation account. And it gives us a little glimpse of what that could look like, except that we have sinful men and we have sinful leaders. And as a result, the kingdom collapses. And in that period of time, the prophets rise up and begin to speak of a coming king that is a perfect king. He's a sinless king. And all of history is leading towards the, the coming of Messiah. Messiah arrived, man in his sin crucified him, and the world is being prepared for a revival of the nation of Israel, and this interim period of time we call it the church age. So we think the church age is kind of it, it's always all about us, right? But Jesus promised that this would be a kind of an interim period, and then he will return, and he will establish a kingdom. And this kingdom is important in the Old Testament because it gives us all the elements of that ultimate kingdom. So when we study this, uh, we'll have a picture of that ultimate kingdom as well. 
and the ultimate kingdom will be with regenerated people and with a sinless king, so it will not collapse. And then after that is the end of world history. So it gives you a glimpse of where we're heading. We won't talk about the church because that's New Testament, but other than that we'll deal with all the other events leading up at least to Messiah. What I see kind of underlying the incident with involving Abraham is God's faithfulness. God is faithful in that whatever he says, you can count on it. Whatever he promises, you can trust that he will fulfill everything that he promises. And the reason I see the faithfulness involved here is because he's going to make some major promises that will in fact be the parameters to the rest of world history. All of the rest of world history, I think, will be focused, even though the secular world doesn't recognize that, will be focused on what God is doing in that one individual, Abraham, that eventuates into a nation, and that nation becomes God's instrument and God's means for producing all the blessings of the rest of history. And that nation, obviously, will be persecuted in time. From Israel's perspective, they need to view it as discipline, because they are a sinful nation. From God's perspective, he's using it to uh, discipline them and bring them to the point where they need to be at the end of history. So God is faithful, and just one verse that indicates that from Deuteronomy 7.9. Know therefore that the Lord your God, he is God, the faithful God, faithful, who keeps his covenant. Now, what's in view here is a different covenant, but we're going to look at the covenant that precedes the one that is in view in Deuteronomy. But he keeps all of his covenant. And his loving kindness to the thousandth generation with those who love him and keep his commandments. Now, this word I highlight, loving kindness, there are two words for love in the Hebrew text, or the Hebrew language. One of them deals with love that we're familiar with. It's a familial love. It's a love where people are inclined to love one another. The word here for, and it's kind of expressed in the word itself, loving kindness is more than that. This is the kind of love, it's an unconditional love that only God has, but it's also related to covenant. In other words, it's a covenantal love. So people can love one another on the human level, and then individuals that enter into a marriage covenant, you might say, their love is different in that it's a committed covenantal love. That's what's in view in loving kindness here. It's God loving, but it's a committed, ongoing, non-disruptive love that is unconditional. That's chesed. Yeah, you got to pronounce it deep down. Chesed. Yeah, I want to see uh, I want to see a little spit coming out of your mouth. Yeah, that's chesed in the Hebrew text. Very good. So God is faithful, and he's always keeping his covenant. We noticed in the Noahic covenant, the laws of nature demonstrate God's faithfulness in keeping the Noahic covenant. Now, he might interrupt it to accomplish certain purposes, but overall... We can trust in the natural realm that the sun is going to rise, that gravity is always going to hold us on earth, all the, the so-called laws of nature that he has set up. 
because he's faithful to his covenant. And he's going to be just as faithful to the covenant that we look at today.